Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio on a Friday afternoon with Peter Williams. Well, back on Wednesday of this week, I quoted extensively from a blog post on the site profgrant.com. The post was headlined, A Falling Out of Love Letter to the University, We Need to Talk. It was posted on Monday of this week by AUT Professor Grant Schofield. He's the Professor of Public Health at AUT and Director of the University's Human Potential Centre. He teaches well-being and chronic disease prevention, especially as it relates to lifestyle. Now, we'll talk more about his work and his research later, but first, the blog, The Falling Out of Love Letter. Grant Schofield is with me now. Hi, Grant. Thanks for joining us here on Reality Check Radio. Great to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Peter. All right. First up, is this a, a career-threatening blog post, do you think? Yeah, it's something that academics have increasingly had to worry about, um, which is an odd thing because, in my mind, one of the main things that an academic or a scientist should do is be involved in the uh, as a critic and conscience of society, and that's a sort of centrist view where when we talk about issues, we weigh the evidence and say, well, this is a fact and this is a fact and these are harms and benefits. Uh, and, and, in fact, that's such an important function that it's actually enshrined in law. There's a thing called the Tertiary Education Act, which allows academics to speak freely and things they have some expertise in without fear of reprisal from their employer, and that's a, a, a sort of privilege that we have. Um, but I think what we've seen recently is a wholesale move away from that. Uh, probably the the thing that people are most familiar with is the 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 famous seven who wrote a letter to the listener some time ago, and then uh, Susie Wiles and her gang sort of ganged up and managed to gather two thousand academics to sign up to the idea that they shouldn't be saying what they said, that that was off limits, people can't talk about this, can't talk about that. Uh, and so we've seen this creep in the university sector, which I think has crept so far now that the emperor's well and truly naked um, and it needs to be called. So I've made that decision to call it. Uh, what those consequences mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but it, yeah, I just feel it from my own career stage it has to be done. Well, you've made the the, the case in that uh, in that answer there when you said being the critic and conscience of society is actually enshrined into law. So, do university vice chancellors, university councils, not know that, not understand that, and and therefore why why did Dawn Freshwater, as the vice chancellor of uh, Auckland University, come down so hard on what we now know as the Listener Seven? I mean, that to me was just extraordinary. Yeah, that, that was an extraordinary um, and, I guess, important but not good change in the way that we're operating and our sort of operating procedures manual, I guess. Uh, yeah, and universities, I think it's become much more subtle than that, though, Peter. You know, there's, there's things that are not said. You can't argue this. They're just, you'll be excluded, and those aren't overt exclusions or non-promotions, but uh, especially the young academics, they just keep their mouths shut. Yeah, because they have a career in front of them. So are you finding that issues such as uh, Mataranga Māori, 
transgenderism, just general belief in things like climate change, the COVID debate, there is just really one way of thinking. You've got to agree with what the the narrative is as far as the university is concerned, not just the university, but the entire university community in New Zealand, all of them. Uh, there is just the one yeah. narrative and academics have to agree with it. End of story. And it's the exact opposite of the way science works, of course, across, of course, across all of those issues you mentioned and more is that uh, there's always a variety of hypotheses and views and people will disagree and, and outcomes. I think COVID is a very clear example of this of, well, if we have this intervention, it's going to have these plausible benefits and these plausible harms. Uh, you know, are those worth it? Uh, who decides are those worth it? Are we going to have an open discussion around that? And we completely closed ranks on that. And, you know, I think you can see the devastating consequences of that on society now. And, and you know, it's just not good enough. We went one step further and I'd previously spent 30 years in academia. I'd never heard the word mis or disinformation used. I didn't even know they were actual words. But what they've come to mean uh, to me is this tremendous anti-science, anti free speech, anti-public debate thing. When you, someone can label you as spreading, being the harbour of misinformation or disinformation means that your argument is so bad that I don't have to lower myself to even debating any facts with you. And if you start to argue in society like that, well, that's that's a, a death spiral to nowhere, and unfortunately that's what we've become as a society. So when did all this start? When do you remember the first instance of it uh, around AUT in, in your job, Grant? Can you, can you pinpoint any particular time or meeting or incident? No, I think it's just crept over the last 10 years. Um, prior to that, it was very much a gloves off. You, you came for a, an argument, you expected an argument, you go to scientific meetings expecting to roll the sleeves up and... And, you know, you could expect your ego to be battered, you could be offended, you could be triggered, any of these things. That's that's what you get when you engage in open debate and no one seemed particularly worried about that. Um, and slowly things creep. But I think COVID is really the, the major tipping point now where somehow, and you'll know more about what's going on in media than I have because I haven't been able to really understand that. It's not my industry, but all of a sudden... Uh, media who were often open to seeing both sides of a story and journalists that had an integrity to to try and understand those were no longer interested in doing that. And that interaction between the universities and the media, I think, has been um, a really uh, damaging relationship. Yes, and I think that in the middle of that, you've got that thing called money. Uh, and my personal experience of the media and the time I left uh, the mainstream media when in September of 2021, that was about money. I was told that the stance that I was taking on COVID vaccination, which was frankly one of just asking questions and about asking, uh, you know, issue, about issues regarding its efficacy and safety and the like. I, I'm not a scientist. I don't know one way or the other. Uh, whether or not the COVID vaccine is safe or, or whether it works. I was just asking questions then, uh, and that, according to management, was threatening 
the income of the radio station. Now, that to me was bullying and an absolute crossing of what I always regarded as a sacred line. But you know, Grant, it's it's gone on even more, hasn't it? In, in the last few days, we've seen Tucker Carlson fired from Fox News, biggest audience on cable news in America, for exactly the same thing, for expressing opinions, for for asking questions, and the the influence of government. Yeah, the influence of of government in New Zealand and of big pharma in the American media, and possibly in New Zealand as well. I, I don't have any actual evidence of that. It, it's just quite extraordinary, isn't it? And it's as if the whole free speech environment that we've grown up with has just been shut down, hasn't it? Yeah, and people shouldn't take that lightly. I think, yeah, my concern and reason I'm taking a stand against this now um, at my stage is, well, first of all, you know, universities have a function in society. I still think we can actually do some good. Um, yet we're going to end up in a situation where we basically end up cancelling ourselves, which is a great irony of the whole thing. Um, because at the end of the day, we're still a business and need to make money. And if we keep going, then we've, we, with a political left view rather than a facts-based centrist view, then we end up excluding half of society. Uh, they don't want to come to us because we offer no value. Um, and we're surprised when our student numbers go down and no amount of advertising or saying we're awesome is going to um, overcome those brutal facts. And so, you know, unless we become centrists, uh, and our job, I, I thought the media's job is to be centrist, and I think uh, academics' jobs are centrist. And those are those are two important parts of society, and they have basically a very similar function, but from different viewpoints. And they've both been hobbled big time, particularly in the last three years. Uh, have you been really quite reluctant to to write anything on your blog because of possible repercussions? Because I had a look at profgrant.com, and prior to what you wrote on what Monday of this week. Uh, the post previous was in January of last year on COVID. So you had, what, 16 months without bursting into print <laughs> on your private blog. Were you were you scared to to open your mouth or to put words to uh, to a to a you know a, a keyboard? Well, I'm not sure about scared, but I'm, I'd say certainly uh, cautious and um, part of that is I know how a colleague of mine, Dr. Simon Thornley, was treated. Um, I don't know if people know Simon, but uh, he's one of the single smartest people I've met. He's a very, very uh, measured and careful scientist. And to see uh, you know, his picture in mainstream media just uh, on, on the front of stuff and these things and, and basically uh, shot in the back, I, you know, that's really um, disconcerting. And you know, as brave as he was, I, you know, maybe I wasn't as brave as Simon. Um, so I've had to keep my head down. In fact, I and I try to keep my head down at all places, Peter, but it just doesn't work out in the end because you are who you are. I mean, I'll go to departmental meetings and I, I walk in there repeating a silent mantra myself, shut up, say nothing, shut up, say nothing. Um, trouble is what happens is we're you know, three minutes in and then I, I because I'm a disagreeable bastard, I, I've launched <laughs> and I've cr created problems. So I've just stopped going to those meetings, frankly. Um, which is disappointing because it's my job to go. Can I talk about Simon Thornley? Uh, were you part yeah. of COVID Plan B with him? Because when, when COVID Plan B was launched in, in 2020, soon after the start of uh, the COVID pandemic, I remember interviewing Simon a few times on the radio and then sort of the word came down. This was uh, an early indicator, I suppose, of uh, interference in the job that I was doing at the time. The word came down that... Um, 
what was the point of talking with Simon Thornley? He had nothing useful to say. Uh, I mm. disagreed completely with that. I thought he had plenty of interesting things to say, uh, especially around the time of the mm. Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, but mm. what has happened to Simon? Because I know that he was also interviewed for a documentary that's just been released that I appear in called Silenced. Uh, Simon was interviewed mm. for that. His lawyer, in the end, uh, advised him that that interview, despite it being recorded, should not be included in the documentary. Yeah, no, so I watched that great documentary, by the way, So, uh, and people should watch that if they haven't already seen it. Um, and I, I know about Simon there. Yeah, I was initially part of plan, COVID Plan B, but um, felt significant pressure to to stop doing that through various circles and and things. And in the end, I had to withdraw from being part of that. And I suppose um, part of that, the advantage Simon has is he is a card-carrying epidemiologist who knows about infectious diseases. I'm a professor of public health that does mainly diet uh, and exercise work so you know really it was getting slightly out of my lane which you know starts to push you outside of the tertiary education act and what you can actually say so so there were sort of two things going on there um although you know i'm disappointed in hindsight i sort of go was i not gutsy enough and should i be more embarrassed about that and i know parts of society would, would say yes and parts were going well you're an idiot for doing it in, in the first place so yeah it is what it is indeed it is but then everybody in a so-called free and Democratic liberal society should be should be able to go in the direction they wish. So is Simon still working? Is he still employed by the University of Auckland as a as an epidemiologist and still teaching there? Yes, he is. Um, and you know, he, he, I think he's over in the Pacific Islands at the moment. He's got some great work going on with scabies and scabies prevention. He's managed to get some good research grants in that space. So it's good. He, he did actually have to survive a formal complaint uh, for I think bringing the university into disrepute and. A bunch of other things, and in the end, uh, that was upheld, and he was fine, and he hadn't crossed that line, so he got through that and survived. But um, yeah, he's got a significant bunch of knives out from, I'm sure, still at the University of Auckland. But that's uh, that's probably not going to change. No. And did I hear the other day talking of scabies that uh, apparently ivermectin is a very good uh, cure for scabies or a very good uh, treatment for scabies, <laughs> and now there's a shortage of it because of you know what? It was um, COVID. <laughs> we couldn't yeah, import yeah. it during during COVID. Well, I mean, that was the astonishing thing. Also, that it was getting labelled as a horse medicine and all that sort of stuff when it's, you know, got widespread positive use, especially with things like scabies and other parasites and uh, humans and, you know, Nobel Prize winning work uh, for that. It just shows to the degree that we're prepared to go to to discredit other treatments. But, you know, that's, that's probably something else again. Okay, let's uh, go back to your blog post uh, about the the love letter or the falling out of love letter with the university. You write, we are laughably out of touch with reality because we have taken political and not scientific positions. Now, as well as the academic staff, uh, the you know the, uh, the the blood and bone of the uh, of a university are the students. Without students, uh, you don't exist. Do the students understand? What has happened with uh, the university and the uh, the faculty taking political and not scientific positions? Yeah, and, and this is something you'll see with a lot of young people. I wrote in that blog about my son who had just recently finished a, a degree actually in the department I work in. And uh, it was really interesting to hear him talk with his mates. I wasn't involved in that conversation, I just overheard it. 
uh, in the listing off. I, I, I said he was categorising um, courses that he had taken, uh, 24 courses over three years, as either useful and interesting or lame. He didn't actually say lame, he actually said woke. Those were his words, but I decided to put that in his word. Um, and he's just listening off, and every second one he's like woke, woke, woke rubbish. And you know, his other mates who are doing something else with BCOM here or BSC here or whatever else are just agreeing with the same things he was saying. Um, and, you know, he, smart young guy, and I sort of still had some faith in the university. I was hoping he's going to go and do a master's degree. And he's just going, you know, why would I, what am I going to learn? I, I go, my main learning is done through listening to podcasts of you know, this one, Huberman Lab. Uh, a neuroscience commander Huberman from Stanford, and you know he gets so much more from experts there than he could get for free from than enrolling in a university. He's like, I'm curious about learning, and I'll do it this way, and, and that's where he's gone. So um, he posted that post on his social, and a whole bunch of his mates straight away going, "Oh gosh, I was just saying that." His parent, um, I'm getting uh, his friend's parents ringing me and going, "Yeah, I agree, and we've had the same problems here and there." So I think it's pretty widespread. What field was his degree in? Uh, exercise science and nutrition. So something similar to the area that you teach in, ironically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did he do it at AUT? Yeah, he did. So it's your colleagues who were offering him lame courses, woke courses. Correct. In your in your department. Correct. How does that make you feel? Yeah, it's just disappointing, but. Uh, yeah, another reason to 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 bring that to attention, and, and you know, some of that these are youngsters, and you know, some of these things actually have some value, and they don't seem to be in the time, and it might, you know, like you don't want to do maths when you're in uh, year nine or something, but yeah, I don't think that explains the whole thing. So, as the professor in that uh, particular area, did you have a word to some of your junior colleagues, to your lecturers about? Course content? Can you can you do that, or is it not acceptable to do that in this day and age? No, we, I think I wrote in that blog. Blog was about we had a course curriculum refresh day, and we talked about what we were doing. But um, it just doesn't get to that level. Those that's not a place to go to. There's a lot of stuff, particularly the Matamanga Maori stuff, that that's you know really off limits if you're not Maori to to say. Well, maybe we could do that a bit better. So those just aren't discussions that are that are had. In public, so we, you know, really rearrange the ditches on the Titanic and tell ourselves how awesome we are and carry on. That's why I say laughably out of touch because it's it's not a uh, yeah, it's just not a thing that we get to the level. And that's why I wrote that blog. I've got, I've got eight points in there. I think are big points around you know the big picture stuff that needs to change. And you know that's why I'm leading with that critic and conscious of society thing. These are these are massive. Issues and you're not going to solve them in a departmental meeting. They they need to be discussed in society. Does uh, AUT have the same issue that Otago University has identified this year—a falling student role and therefore less income and therefore financial um, issues? Yep, every New Zealand university, surprisingly, uh, well, I shouldn't say surprisingly, they must be doing a reasonable job. But uh, University of Canterbury have seen some growth, but every single New Zealand university year on year now has seen. Uh, falling domestic enrolments, which is, hasn't really happened in history before. Um, and, of course, we're decimated with the uh, international student enrolments, which they just haven't come back and probably won't. So, yeah, um, AT had a restructure last year, 
fight and vicious staff. Um, unfortunately, they they because uh, I'm not against restructuring and cost cutting. Unfortunately, everyone didn't do the process very well, and they had to reemploy everyone, and we'll reembark on the same process. I imagine again from Madeira. Otago University says uh, one of the reasons for the falling numbers uh, is that the numbers of high school students with UE these days is declining, and therefore there aren't as many high school leavers eligible for university as before. So it's not just a university issue, is it? The whole education system has got real, real issues. And when you don't have an achievement as, um, well, I would have thought as basic as UE, uh, not being achieved at a particularly high level, the country's got real problems, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not just that lack of literacy and numeracy coming out of primary and secondary school. It's just that even the ones who do have that and come to study uh, aren't able to achieve at the most basic level. And, and partially that's the reason uh, Sam, my son, would probably regard some of those courses as lame and woke because they were trying to teach basic literacy to students as well. You know, when you have a first-year course called Knowledge, Inquiry and Communication and they're just trying to get them to write anything coherently, Um that you've got a problem there, and yeah, that, that's that's part of the problem that Otago and we face. But it's not the whole problem. Um, and I'm not saying I subscribe to this, but this slogan. But if you look on social media um, around those Otago announcements, and you work your way through the people's comments on Twitter or someplace like that, you know, there's just hashtag Go Woke, Go Broke uh, all over the place. And I think um, just even realising their shift to the to the left without acknowledging their loss of centrism is is a problem for Otago um, and other universities. And I'm not sure they'll they're easily able to face that and solve it. So even though a certain cohort of students might not be able to read and write, those that do, they understand what they're being taught at the universities. They're intelligent enough to know that what they're getting is uh, not necessarily both sides of the story. Correct. Um, and I shouldn't always say that. I mean, there's still fantastic science going on across, you know, New Zealand and Australian universities from a whole bunch of just, you know, very, very smart people who have the ability to contribute to society. And those um, people who are often not good communicators are never going to stand up and say something like, I am, uh, will be terribly frustrated with the whole um, state of the situation. But they, they are so into the sort of detailed science that they do, that they'll just carry on and try and do that the best they can, no matter what. So if you're in charge of the university sector in New Zealand, uh, 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 <laughs> hang on, um, Grant, uh, what would you do? How would you restructure and, and reinvent universities? Uh, they don't need to be reinvented in some aspects, like those mandates that legally already exist, like that. Uh, conscience of society type stuff, but there's a there's a whole bunch of other stuff that make them increasingly less viable. Um, one is just the sheer volume of of valuable real estate that they own and and how under occupied and underused it is. And there's now a culture, you know, the the the, the sort of famous paintings from uh, Renaissance and then um, as the scientific method came in through Oxford and Cambridge and those universities through through the last several centuries are places where people came together to debate and do learning and 
the the essential part of that is the debate, and the other essential part is that people come together. Um, and, and increasingly, um, universities are ghost towns, and it's frankly got to the point where it's it's comedic. You walk into any university department on pretty much any day of the week, but especially something like a, a Friday, and and there's no one there. Uh, and yeah, you know, we teach university courses for 24 weeks a year, uh, and, and they're empty the rest of the time. So some actual use of these spaces as public spaces where people come together and uh, is is a complete no-brainer. It's just an absolute waste of taxpayers' money. It makes us not viable. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing, we could simplify down to we've, we've got degrees for God knows what, everything, uh, with their own brand, and I think we could simplify that. And if these degrees have a place in society, then... Uh, they could be simplified uh, and uh, and reduced in number, and I think that would make a tremendous difference. Uh, and the other thing is this idea of a constant growth strategy. I mean, it's the same idea that your property was going to keep going up forever at 7% a year. It, it, it can't logically happen forever, and the same is true, but on a shorter time frame for student numbers, right, you can't have a 2% uh, compound increase in student numbers um, over 20 or 30 years. It's not a thing. There's not enough people in, in the country to do that. And so uh, we need to be fit for a, a more defined purpose. What about the the, the spread of, of courses of, of uh, specialist subjects around the universities? We've got two medical schools, two engineering schools, but we've got a law school pretty much in all universities, haven't we? And AUT, in fact, uh, added a law school to uh, yep. its uh, its courses uh, not that long ago. Uh, not that long ago, do we really need to uh, to have a whole lot of law schools around New Zealand? For instance, do we need to be offering the same degrees at every university, or should there be more specialisation? Yeah, that'd be that's a, a a really good example, Peter, of where we could go. I I, I sort of felt like. That's a good thing. And then we're not having to compete against each other directly. We're offering expertise and um, we're really good at something and we do that. Um, unfortunately, universities have a sort of prestige thing going and that's one of the reasons why Cato wants another med- to be a third medical school. It's, it's, it's prestige to the university. Oh, oh, you've got a medical school. You must be more special than than Victoria or, or Massey or AUT. Um, so there's those sort of marketing parts of it as well. You talk about the buildings uh, being unoccupied for most of the year with your only teaching for 24 weeks of the year. Uh, don't universities use uh, their facilities for short-term courses for the two- and three-week breaks and the holidays between semesters, and isn't that supposed to be an extra course, uh, an extra source rather oh, of income yeah, for them? There's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that going on, but, you know, really, compared to... Um, yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of that going on, and that's a good thing, and we could do better on that as well. Okay, uh, and I see in your blog that you actually charge for car parking. I mean, dear me. Oh, uh, just, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's just a, a one little trivial fact, but I thought it doesn't make uh, the university a particularly welcoming place, and it, it doesn't say to the students, hey, come and learn. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the funniest thing I've seen in discussion with my colleagues about exactly this is that well, I've, I've always just said that because I'm imagining a shopping centre where you um, park your shopkeepers right out the front of the best car parks is where your professors and whatnot could go. Um, and then you relegate your your actual customers to 
uh, second or third class citizens down the road, treat them with contempt, charge them for parking. Um, never heard of them when they arrive. Um, inane bureaucratic process if they wanted to buy something. Um, it, it makes no sense. There's one really interesting thing which happens in my neck of the woods um, is that a whole lot of our students really like to go to the Massey University Library in uh, Albany. And I wondered what that was about because they're AUT students and we've got some perfectly good libraries, but it's all about the fact that Massey um, on that campus doesn't charge for car parking. <laughs> and it's what, 10 or 15k down the motorway, isn't it? Yeah, up to the north. Yeah, exactly. Uh, extraordinary. <laughs> so uh, you you see a need for significant change in New Zealand universities. Who's, who's going to do it? Who's prepared to lead the change to bring debate back, to make the universities the critic and the conscience of society? Is there somebody in politics, in education, who is prepared to stand up and say, we have to lead, we have to change here? Uh, well, not in the current government, I imagine, but I guess I said I want to be a centrist, so you know, too far down that discussion. But no, I don't, I'm not positive about it at this exact moment. I don't know who that is, and so that's why I've written something, because someone should say something, and if any other academics or people in tertiary education are listening to that, then now's the chance to... Um, stand up and say something as well because, yeah, I think uh, it's clearly not coming from the leadership anytime soon. I don't see it as a particularly unique issue in New Zealand, though. I read The Spectator quite a bit, and there's uh, a regular column in there by a guy called James Allen, a law professor, used to be at Otago University, uh, went to the University of Queensland. He's a tenured professor there at the law school. He's been there, I think, 11 or 12 years now. And uh, he, he laments almost on a weekly basis the state of the universities in Australia. Uh, then you read about Cambridge and some of the things going on there. And then, heaven forbid, uh, with all due respect to her, Harvard University appointing Jacinda Ardern to fellowships. I, I, I mean, uh, the, the, the swing to the left at universities is going on all around the Western world, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but as I say, they do need to be careful because they'll end up excluding half their audience um, and half their customers and... You know, no business wants to do that, um, but it's also not the right thing to do because it's not the place that it's supposed to be under those conditions. Yes, yeah, so it's not just New Zealand, you'd be right, it's everywhere. Canada, I think, is particularly bad. Right. Let's talk about your work then at AUT, uh, Grant. You're a professor of public health. As I've said, uh, you're not a medical doctor, even though you have a PhD. AUT doesn't have a medical school. So tell us what degree you teach and what work would your graduate students move into after they've left AUT with their qualifications? So, yeah, I mainly uh, teach a sort of exercise and nutrition major across a bunch of degrees that's in. But most of my actual work at AUT is either uh, research, because I'm, I've been pretty successfully getting research grants, which covers you know, large bits of your salary, therefore your time, um, or masters and PhD students. So, yeah, the, the sort of job people would go to from that master's and PhD degree is either to be uh, an academic or a scientist and it could be an industry as well uh, or they'll take that and become uh, entrepreneurial with it which a, a lot of them have done uh, as well so yeah that's probably pretty much my bag. Right and I read according to uh, 
the AUT website that you teach lifestyle and nutrition as a means of chronic disease prevention. Uh, this to me would seem a pretty logical thing to do. How come they don't teach this at medical schools? Or do yeah, they? Well, that's been um, a really interesting uh, sort of bunch of headbanging that I've been doing for my whole career, really. I guess my work's really about extending the human health span. So, you know, I suppose most people are at some point they're going to die. That's inevitable. But uh, the major problem in New Zealand is not so much premature death, but premature loss of quality of life. So we're alive, but we're leaning a lot of care because we're pretty disabled through the the you know, big four or five diseases that get us, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular stroke, dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and for the most part, those are completely preventable in the first place. So sort of aspiring to think about how we would uh, move away from a system which treats symptoms and um, spends a lot of money downstream, the sort of classic ambulance at the bottom of the cliff type situation, and then trying to think about, well, can we keep people healthy in the first place? And you know, the idea of fitness is medicine, uh, food is medicine, sleep is medicine. It's been what I've studied my whole life, and um, you're right. It's um, that medical schools are very much down this medical model of treating symptoms and have been really overrun and perverted by pharmaceutical first treatments. Uh, I think nothing's probably more obvious than something like mental health where the medicines you know, might have a temporary positive effect for some people, but you know mostly have a net long-term harmful effect, make you worse. Um, yet we know that those treatments of exercise, diet and uh, sleep, we do randomised trials and the strongest possible science. These are the best possible treatments. Yet we have no infrastructure, no training, uh, no investment. Um, in New Zealand, it's a twenty-two billion dollar industry just for the public health system that we have. Um, virtually none of that money gets spent on preventing disease in the first place. And we know that the return on investment is four times better than, at least for people's quality of life, than treating it afterwards. Uh, we know that in medicine, you know, we spend a quarter of the health budget in the last six months of people's lives for treatment they never wanted um, that doesn't make their length or quality of life any better, often worse. Um, the system has been, uh, uh, I guess I'm working in broken systems, universities and uh, medical and health systems. This has you know, been a tremendous frustration to me. Um, but I've decided that, you know, just to try and build infrastructure and build teams and build people and just keep chipping away at their message. And it might not happen in my lifetime, but uh, at least we're making progress on that science and practice in this country. Because it seems to me it should be so obvious. Uh, we keep on hearing on a daily basis about the crisis our health system is in. Yes, we have staff shortages, but apparently as we move into winter, we're getting more and more people becoming sick, uh, the incidence of cancers and uh, heart attacks or cardio disease is, uh, is increasing. Yet there does not, there does not appear, even, even during the COVID pandemic, there, there was no advice about how to keep yourself healthy, about eating lots of oranges and having lots of vitamin C and vitamin D and doing exercise and getting plenty of sleep. I mean, surely 
instead of spending what was over a hundred and a hundred and sixteen million dollars on government advertising for 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 COVID uh, related issues, including the vaccine campaign, they could have got a campaign together about how to really look after ourselves to keep healthy. Surely that would be a much better investment than spending hundreds of millions on pharmaceuticals, wouldn't it? <laughs> I was so um, actually heard about COVID and I didn't really know what it was and how fatal it could be. And then as the the more and more data started to come out, it became increasingly obvious that if if we were at uh, risk of, of you know, serious illness or dying, then it was really a metabolic condition of of poor health, keeping your blood sugar under control, being fit. Um, and I was initially thinking, wow, this is actually might be a turning point in, in the rest of the chronic diseases that we suffer because it's got the exact same risk profile. And if we can, gosh, if we just spend a fraction of our money on that, then we're going to make tremendous progress. But um, if anything, we'd, we've got worse and we did nothing and we, we actively suppressed, you know, interesting information. You talk about vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. Uh, um, being active, um, getting rid of your diabetes, all of these things are huge, huge uh, benefit for COVID mortality, yet never got a mention. And so uh, I guess my take home from that is and one of the reasons that we've consistently failed to get uh, lifestyle treatments for, say, diabetes. We can take, and we're doing this in our work now, and we're not the only ones, you can take a bunch of people with pre-diabetes and diabetes is type 2 diabetes and with a, a well-executed lifestyle intervention, half of them will be will reverse that condition, no longer even have the diagnosis yet. We seem to make, yeah, we can do that cheaply, um, yet we can seem to make no progress in mainstream medicine with that. No one has the money to fund it, yet we'll, we'll fund $100,000 a year for renal dialysis for a single person because of chronic kidney disease from their diabetes. It's just... It's just a really perverse situation. Uh, and another good example is, that, you know, the biggest cost to our healthcare system is uh, anaesthetising young kids to pull out teeth because they're rotten because of the the ultra processed sugary food they're eating, and yet we don't even have a functioning system for that to to either prevent it in the first place or treat them in the second place. So, do you believe? without being all conspiracy theorist here, do you believe that there is way too much influence in our health system from Big Pharma, from, from the drug companies? Oh, no, it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, they've, um, you know, conspiracy theory is something that seems unplausible and is unlikely to be proved true. Um, these companies have been uh, convicted and uh, indicted uh, with actual conspiracy. So, you know, Pfizer and the like have been fined in the billions of dollars for exactly that sort of practice. Uh, and it's not just the big pharma companies that are engaging willfully in that. It's also the um, big food companies that have done that in, in uh, medicine and, you know, a whole bunch of other fields as well. So they, these aren't theories. They These are facts um, and we know the perverse influence that these the, their funding and hiding of data and misrepresenting data and uh, they've had across a, a range of uh, pharmaceuticals and statins and these types of huge selling medications that have you know been real blockbusters have uh, been done deceitfully and there's just very little doubt about that it's not a conspiracy theory
So as a scientist, you must be almost disgusted by that, aren't you? Do you do you know well, of, course, uh, of, of drug drug company money that's gone into AUT for any research um, in your area or in any other area? I don't think AUT had particularly much to do with drug research. That's really been the uh, uni services at uh, University of Auckland that's owned that type of drug trial, and then the clinical trials research unit at Middlemore Hospital has really persisted on making a business out of that over the years. So I think we've been relatively. Uh, free of that, and that's probably why we've got less infrastructure than other people. But then you look at the state of the health system and the fact that we are we are having our hospitals overrun, hospitals full. We keep on hearing these these horror stories. Uh, who who is who is pushing the case for a really solid public health campaign, such as what you teach in terms of the basics of of a good healthy life? Good food, good sleep, good exercise. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a bizarre thing. I'd, I'd been uh, appointed actually by a national government to be the chief health and nutrition advisor in the Ministry of Education and have influence across there. At one point in my life, I'd sat on the boards of various government agencies, done that sort of thing with low funding. Um, it was interesting when Labor came in, I'd really felt that that would be time for a big change. They'd actually... Uh, the left at least had usually seen its way to understand the benefits of public health prevention. And in fact, yeah, public health in New Zealand has really switched from you know, investment from the left in that field um, and, and sort of more rationalisation, which is often needed by the right as they came in. And um, this last government has been really interesting because it, it, it didn't follow that model. It, it rationalised even more in mm. the prevention and space and did very little in terms of investing and that's really been quite a surprise I'm not sure why that was so so yeah we've sort of lost our way completely there so I'm not sure when or where that would happen because it usually would have been the left that would have that would have been the hero of that but they haven't been so your particular role at the Ministry of Education just came to its natural conclusion contract not renewed sort of thing well no I just quit in the end because you know I hadn't quite got to the bottom of what a public servant uh, signs up to do and what that is <laughs> do is to unquestionably follow the minister's direction and not give advice but only enact their policy and no matter how inane it is uh, <laughs> I just can't I just couldn't do that Peter it's not a I can't I can't utter rubbish if it's rubbish I just am physically unable to do that so you know I've was unfortunately a pretty ineffectual public servant and just had to leave out of complete frustration. You know, I mean, this is going to sound stupid, but I'd sit there in Molesworth Street sometimes and there were 5,000 people in this Ministry of Education building and and I would I would do this because it was so bad. I And, you know, I'd hear people next to me taking questions about, you know, humane ways to kill possums on the school ground or something stupid. And, and I'd go, well, what would happen if the earthquake happened here or a bomb went off and, and this building no longer, and all the people no longer existed, would schools still open tomorrow and do a good job? And, you know, after a while of pondering, I thought the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know you've got no future when you're thinking things like that. Yeah. But you've also worked as well as being a unsuccessful and ineffective uh, public servant. You've also worked in the private sector as well uh, by putting together some companies in the same field of health prevention, chronic disease prevention, healthy lifestyles. And one that I'm uh, 
yeah. uh, intrigued by is called Precure, uh, which is a great name for a company, P-R-E-K-U-R-A, Precure. In other words, yeah. that's prevention is the cure. Uh, tell us a bit about your work. 100%, that's exactly the... Yeah, tell us exactly a bit about your work there, yeah. Well... Yeah, I've sort of felt that one of the things about being in a private company is that, first of all, you have to actually make things work um, and you have to be nimble. So we'll sit down and go, well, how about this? We'll do this. Oh, that's not working. We need to change that and do this, this, and this. So that, you know, when you come from a bureaucracy of a university or a government thing is, first of all, um, refreshing and quite good fun. Um, but more than that, you can be effective. And uh, what we've settled in when this whole health crisis is this idea of a health coach, which hasn't really been a profession, but it's become increasingly quite a interesting thing in primary care where there's a bunch of people that are from the community and they might have had some success and they will have done a course hopefully with us with quite a lot of detail actually probably more than I could do at the university but in a quicker um, more accessible much much cheaper way and learn to be able to combine the latest science with with ease have you changed techniques, you know, not telling people what to do and writing prescriptions, asking where they're at and asking what they want to do and what they want to achieve out of life. And those two things are quite a powerful combination. So we've been pretty successful at leading that. Um, we've we've done that primarily around diabetes and that sort of things. But more recently, we've had a good foray into mental health. Um, and, you know, as I say, like that's not just – and they're not taught this stuff in medical schools. There's psychology – training doesn't have anything to do with really the most effective treatments around poor uh, mental health. And this is one of the incredibly frustrating things with COVID. It's like, oh, you know, less can't have anything happening here, everyone hide at home, unless the health system gets overrun. When you looked at the mental health system, I mean, not only was it overrun, in many cases it didn't even exist in any functioning capability. If you have a mild to moderate mental health problem in this country, good luck finding anyone. Uh, let alone anyone who knows what they're doing, so uh, in a timely manner. So that's what we've been doing and just sort of uh, moving along. It's been such a you know, great journey so far, so hopefully I can continue doing that sort of work and you know, that maybe that's the path to actually, you know, I'm desperate to make a difference <laughs> in some way in the world here, not for sort of hero reasons here, Peter, but I just think you know, at some point people need to do the right thing and um, maybe business is a way to do that. So can you be a professor at a university and be involved in private companies at the same time? Is that allowed under the terms of uh, of your contract or of, of your employment? Well, so what happened is that um, when I first had the idea, I went with the other 14 of us that were starting. I went to the university and said, hey, we've got this idea. It'd be really cool. Do you want to do it as an enterprise? And they're like, well, can't see any need for that or what you're doing has any use in society. No. I was like, well, can we do it then? Like, oh, okay. Um, and then they're like, well, you can't really do that if you're working full-time. So then I came down to point eight at the university and a proportional appointment at that. But, yeah, I would have much rather done it with the university as an enterprise, but couldn't get them to do it at the time. Because that's what uh, happens so much in overseas institu- institutions, doesn't it, that the, uh, the mm-hmm. university uh, goes into business, basically, doesn't it, and uses its staff uh, to well, to do research and then to go and help in the community and sell their services in the community. It's a it's a way of making money for the university, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's a good way of outreaching um, effective stuff. So, yeah, we could definitely do better at that, um, and I wish we would, but, yeah, it's, it's not a problem I can easily solve by myself. 
All right. So how do you see your future, Grant? Tell me about how old you are. I've, I've met you a few times uh, back in my TV days. I suspect by now you'd be, what, late 50s, uh, approaching retirement age. Uh, do you see yourself uh, yeah, no, working mid, mid, all the way? Mid-50s, mid yeah. Well, I mean, I think retirement isn't a thing I aspire to. Like, I would always like to keep doing things that I can add value to society. And if there's things that I can keep doing, then that's... Um, Great. I, I increasingly worry that I haven't got a future at the university and perhaps doing all this stuff is not going to help with that. But, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully I will maybe settle down to a half-time position at the university where I'm able to, to do the research and advance that state of knowledge and then, you know, do some more in business and get this health coaching and, and prevention as cure thing uh, going. That's what I'd like to do. I mean, I, and I always want to... Um, like you, Peter, um, work's important, but so is family and um, so is the allocation of some time in your life to actually stay healthy and fit. So I'm a, I'm a real enthusiast around um, uh, having time every day to get outside and do something. So, yeah, that's probably the main thing that's going to keep me sane. Uh, as an observer of the New Zealand population and your role as a professor of public health, how do you regard the, the current state of the health of New Zealanders? Well, we never. It's interesting because we haven't. We, we live a long time, long as we ever have. Um, so, you know, on one hand, that's good. We've got a very long lifespan, but you know, that health span hasn't really kept up with that. So, that's gap between actual life years and healthy life years is um, the longest it's ever been. Uh, an example of this is think of this: five million people in New Zealand. So, any one year, there's five million years of life to be had. We lose a million life years per year due to poor health and well something like nine percent of those are from accidents and unavoidable things and contagious disease but the other remaining 90 odd percent is is from preventable lifestyle disease um and you know i think there's a lot of social things for us to address with that you know, how do we how do we manage to use something wonderful like a cell phone and you know the fact you've got access to all of humanity's knowledge right at your fingertips um yet at the same time we know that the um light that it emits destroys our quality and quantity of sleep and that affects our health you know we there's always pros and cons to everything we do and i just think this we change and um so solve one health problem another will emerge but we need to keep confronting those new new issues and the current issue is that we sit around too much we a lot of unhealthy food, our alcohol content uh, consumption is pretty high and um, we have this sort of unknown future with devices and AI and how that information affects us. I've read that life expectancy in the United States has actually decreased in recent times. It's gone from mm. overall in the, what, 78 back to I think 76 now. Uh, New Zealand mm. is slightly older than that uh, with our life expectancy, but do you believe that we are in danger of going the same way as the US with the kind of food that we eat, with the obesity issues which are emerging, especially in, in some parts of the country? Do you believe that our life expectancy may well regress as well? Yeah, it's, it's plausible that could happen like in the US. Um whether that actually happens or not is another thing. We're, we're pretty good at keeping people alive uh, no matter what. And 
we have quite a good system set up to do that. So yeah, whether that actually pans out, I don't know. You got any comments on the fact that in the calendar year of 2022, we had 10% more deaths than would have been expected in terms of our average of the last uh, oh, seven or eight years? Excess death. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I read a lot about this and I'm thinking a lot about this. There's a lot of stuff. Is this, you know, these vaccine injuries that are unrelated, uh, that are things, there's something unrelated going on. And I think, unfortunately, the way we were biased and counting things means we will never know um, because we have such a useless system for reporting adverse events of uh, things like the COVID vaccine. Um, not only, even if it was functional, there seemed to be such a, a bias. Uh, we still count people dying with COVID as if it was from COVID. So uh, those sort of things all taken together, I think it's going to be impossible to pinpoint that ever and so people will continue arguing about that. Um, you know, it's definitely alarming. Um, on the other hand, maybe we it's a catch-up because on the years where we were locked down and we had uh, you know, no deaths that we normally would have had from seasonal flus and um, people that were near the end of their life didn't die that year and they died the next year. So we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's alarming. It's hard to know what's going on, though, and I, I definitely don't know the answer. But surely we should collect data, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we find out when people yeah, pass should, away what, a, what their vaccination yeah. status is and whether or not they had any adverse events before their passing? Yeah, 100%. Um, those would be all good things to do. Uh, and in a functioning society, they would be open for debate if you weren't doing that. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we're in that society, Peter. Did you get vaccinated yourself, Grant, and were you forced to get vaccinated, mandated to? Yeah, I, I was mandated into it, and at the time I decided I'd rather keep my job. Um, if I had my time again, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, I had a really interesting situation with my two older sons. Uh, Jackson, who was 20 at the time, was doing professional lifeguarding and was mandated to do that. He, he did it. I felt he was coerced into doing that through his um, employer, Surf Life Saving New Zealand, uh, he did the first shot uneventful. Uh, him and his brother went to get their second shot. Jackson had a, a very serious adverse event where he became unconscious and in a seizure for a few hours. Um, at the pharmacy, the ambulance was short-staffed because they'd had to settle where they couldn't come and get him for a number of hours. Um, eventually got into hospital. We couldn't go in because, you know, danger of this, danger of that. And uh, eventually, you know, a day later, they discharged him and said that they felt he was dehydrated, which was complete nonsense. Um, of course, so but he was double vaccinated, I suppose, at that point, even though it was an injury. Um, he carried on with his work. I wrote to the CEO and the chief medical officer of Surf Life in New Zealand, um, saying that they were unethical in their behaviour. They coerced him into it, and um, this was around the time that there was, you know, increasing evidence that the more harm good for young people and really meant nothing but uh, you're an idiot, Professor Schofield, from there. Um, but unfortunately, my other son, who'd had the one uh, shot by then, refused to get the second one for obvious reasons, having witnessed his brother outcome, and uh, and then was really excluded from coming on the university campus for the remainder of his degree, which is um, really disappointing. So um, there's a, there's, that's sort of our family's 
story with that. My wife ended up with some serious side effects with uh, inner ear infections, which is a common uh, side effect as well from the vaccination. So, yeah, and, uh, yeah, people were afraid to tell of those stories, but that's that's our family's track. I'll tell you one from my family, Grant. Uh, my wife was doing a beekeeping course of all things. She's a retired company executive, but after we came to yep. live in central Otago, she was doing a beekeeping course at Otago Polytechnic in Cromwell. Uh, when they found Brilliant. out she, she wasn't vaccinated, well, the country's short of beekeepers, apparently, and Grant Robertson actually paid her course fees, which was staggering, considering she went through university 40 years ago. Uh, she still got a free course yep. in beekeeping. Anyway, uh, she wasn't allowed to complete the beekeeping course because she wasn't allowed on the campus outside amongst the beehives at the Cromwell Polytech or Otago Polytech at the Cromwell campus. I mean, some of the the mandated regulations were just illogical and stupid, weren't they? And uh, I just yeah. wonder what sort of long-term impact it's it's going to have. Uh, I mean, Sarah's beekeeping well, course in the big scheme of things is not a big deal, but lots of other educational careers have come to a halt, haven't they? And that might be one of the reasons why universities are losing students. Well, that's just a, an obvious one. I had a call from a woman yesterday of uh, her daughter's in physiotherapy at AUT and uh, hasn't been vaccinated, can't come on campus. But it's not just an expectation that she got the initial shots, but that she continues to get these, uh, I don't even know how many boosters we're up to now, um, and they don't want to do that. And so she's going to be excluded from her uh, aspiration of being a young woman becoming a physiotherapist and, you know, that my heart. So you're telling me that in 2023, here we are in the middle of 2023 almost, that AUT is still mandating vaccinations for its students? For, no, for its students that would end up having to go into a hospital. Oh, I see, just in the, in the health sciences, yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, still, yeah. <laughs> Staggering, isn't it? <laughs> Hey, Grant, uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. I, I applaud you for your braveness, uh, your bravery in, in speaking out, writing what you did uh, earlier this week, and also for the work that you're doing on campus at AUT, because what, what you teach just seems so logical. I cannot believe that uh, after all we've been through in the last three years, that keeping ourselves healthy is not regarded as a major government policy, but... There you go. What do we know? Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Peter. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, while we're on the mutual fan angle, I just you know, appreciate what you've gone through and uh, what you've brought to journalism uh, both over the years but also in the role you're doing now. All righty. Nice talking to you, Grant. Grant Schofield from AUT here on Reality Check Radio. Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 